The first passage was from um, Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. The second passage was from Philippians um, chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. Hi, everyone. My name's Nat Rosner. I'm one of the ministers here. I'm very new here, though. This is only my third Sunday, so if you haven't seen me around, that might be why. I'm going to be working on the Carlton team uh, at uh, 10 a.m. and also as part of the new 4 p.m. congregation once that gets going. And I'll be around Uni Church a little bit and especially before 4 p.m. gets going fully. In the mornings, I'll be working with the team there around welcoming and integration, evangelism, and doing a few other things across the day. I've really enjoyed being at Uni Church over the last few weeks and getting to meet some of you and chat over dinner. So thank you for being so warm and welcoming. I've been really encouraged by how many people have come up and said hi and had a chat. I've been really thankful as I've started here over the last few weeks that I had a really great break over summer. I had a lot of annual leave owing and apparently when you switch jobs in the Anglican Church in Melbourne you have to use up all your annual leave before you start your new job. So I was told I had to have eight weeks off. Well if someone's got to do it uh, I was happy to do it. And part of that holiday we went into New South Wales for three, three weeks and then had half a week in Gippsland Lakes. Mostly we were catching up with family and friends in regional New South Wales and in Sydney. I don't know about you when you're packing to go away on holidays. I have two competing desires. One is to be really well prepared and the other is to pack lightly. And those two desires kind of clash a little bit. 
One of the things I like to be well prepared with is lots of book for, books for reading when I'm on holiday. So this is the pile of books that I took with me for three and a half weeks of holidays. Can I just say that was a crazy expectation <laughs> that I would get through all of this reading on a holiday that was mostly about catching up with family and friends. To uh, do myself justice, I have to say I know my problem with packing. I ran this pile of books past my husband Brian before I packed them and he said it was all fine. So um, I blame him as well. <laughs> Needless to say, uh, my reading expectations for the holiday were pretty much completely unmet. But we did have a great holiday. The passage that we're looking at together tonight is all about expectations. It helps us to have realistic expectations about our lives as Christians. And it also sets an expectation that God has of us as his people. So first of all, what should we expect of the Christian life? We're going to be looking at the passage that you can find in the news sheet that you got as you came in. So looking at verse 29... For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul makes it clear that for the Christians in Philippi, the Christian life will involve both believing in Christ and also suffering for Christ. I don't think it's a surprise to many of us to hear that believing in Christ is part and parcel of the Christian life. But to hear that suffering for Jesus can also be expected is more sobering. To help us understand both of these elements, we're going to take a little sneak peek into Philippians chapter 2 that we'll be hearing more about next week. So let's just read from verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's an amazing uh, passage, isn't it? A, a hymn or a poem about Jesus. And believing in Jesus means believing in Jesus' life story. It means believing that Jesus is God, that he willingly became a servant, that he lived on earth as a man, that he humbly and obediently died on the cross, and that he has now been raised by God to rule over all. There's much more that we could say about what we believe as Christians, but this is the heart of what it means to believe in Jesus. And the Christian life involves living this story. Ben Witherington puts it really well. The gospel is the retelling of the story of Jesus. And the pattern of that story 
is meant to be replicated as the life pattern of Jesus' followers. The pattern of Jesus' story is meant to be replicated as the life pattern of Jesus' followers. The pattern of Jesus' story is humility. The pattern of Jesus' story is obedience to God. The pattern of Jesus' story is suffering. And finally, the pattern of Jesus' story is resurrection. This is the life pattern that we should expect if we are people who are followers of Jesus. It's really important to notice that in this passage, Paul isn't talking about suffering in general. He doesn't have in mind suffering that might come through sickness or perhaps suffering that might come through something like natural disasters. Rather, what's in mind here is suffering precisely because someone is a Christian, suffering for Jesus, as verse 29 puts it. And I wonder if you noticed how Paul introduces this pattern of the Christian life. It has been granted to you, he says. The Greek word used here means a gift of God's grace. It's about a gift freely given or as a favour. And we're used to thinking this way of God's gift to us of faith in Christ. And what a beautiful gift that is. But to think of suffering as a gift from God seems really perverse, doesn't it? If suffering is a gift, it feels like the kind of gift we might want to re-gift, except that feels like it would be really mean, or a gift that we might take back to the store. We need to understand that Paul doesn't call suffering for Jesus a gift because it's good. It's not. It's hard. But he calls it a gift because what because of what God can do with that suffering. It is a gift because God can use it for our good and for his glory. We see that in other places in the New Testament. Uh, Listening now to Romans chapter 5, Paul says, We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God can do good things even when we suffer. But even having said all of this, the idea that living for Jesus might involve suffering is still really hard, I think. And there are two issues that I'd like to flag around our discomfort with this. The first is the attitude of Western culture to pain. Anthropologists sometimes characterise human cultures according to frameworks, frameworks that drive behaviour and values. And so one scheme suggests that Western cultures have been driven by guilt and innocence, Arab and Asian cultures have been driven by shame and honour, and animistic cultures have been driven by power and fear. There's a guy called David Williams, who some of you might know. He's at St Andrew's Hall with CMS. And he suggests that in Western cultures, we've had a real paradigm shift in this way. In place of the guilt and innocence worldview, he now believes we have much more of a pain and pleasure framework for living. And so that means you make decisions based on what feels good for you and what makes you happy. Your identity is as a pleasure seeker, someone who looks for pleasure and someone who tries to avoid pain. 
I find that a really uh, helpful framework when I look at the way people seem to make decisions in Australia at the moment. And so if we live in a culture of pain avoiders, our aversion to suffering for Jesus is really understandable. This passage calls us to recalibrate our attitude to possible suffering for Jesus. God looks at suffering from a completely different perspective than the way our culture does. I think we also sometimes feel unsettled by the prospect of suffering for Jesus because we forget where we're up to in the Jesus story. We're tempted to leap to the end. When Jesus will return, there will be a new heaven and a new earth and there won't be any suffering anymore. But we're not there yet, even though we know that will be the end of the story. I don't know if any of you are into cricket. I'm a bit of a cricket tragic, I have to admit. And I loved watching some of the Ashes series over the summer. And if you remember that series, uh, there were five test matches. Australia won the first three. At the end of the third test match, it was 3-0. Really, we knew the result of the series, but it was too early to hand over the trophy and crack over the champagne. Even though everyone knew the final result was that Australia was winning or would win the series, they still played out the remaining two test matches. That's a bit like where we are in history. At this point in history, we are still in the middle of the Jesus story. We know what the ending will be, but we are not there yet. Suffering is part of that story now for many Christians, but we can be confident persevering because we know how the story will end. Friends, a gap between our expectations of the Christian life and the reality of the Christian life is where disappointment with God lies. Paul offers a realistic picture of what we can expect from life if we are followers of Jesus. It's about believing in Jesus, but it's also more. For the Philippians and countless other Christians over the centuries, being a Christian has also included suffering for Jesus. This doesn't mean all Christians will suffer because uh, they are Christians. But we shouldn't be surprised if we do one day suffer for our faith. Lots of people have written about what we might see as growing opposition to the gospel in Western cultures over the past 20 to 30 years, maybe even a little bit longer. Tom Wright wrote a little commentary on the book of Philippians in 2002, and even 20 years ago, he wrote about the skepticism and cynicism that were growing within our culture in opposition to Christian faith. In some ways, there has been growing anger at the heritage that Christian faith has left in Western cultures. Some of that anger is probably justified, some of it probably isn't. For some people, I think there's been a deliberate turning away from our Christian heritage of the past. And I think there's also a growing desire to write a new narrative for our culture that separates itself from Christian faith. I don't know what your experience has been. Maybe you have faced opposition to Christian faith, maybe at uni, maybe in the workplace, maybe at school, in your family, maybe among your friends. 
maybe one day that kind of opposition might turn to become suffering in Australia. If it does, this passage reminds us not to be surprised. Remember that suffering for the name of Jesus is part of God's gift to us. This is part of belonging to the story of Jesus. And this passage is a wonderful encouragement to keep believing even if we suffer for what we believe. So with this expectation of the Christian life in mind, let's go back to verse 27. There we find what God expects of us if we are people who believe in Jesus. We read in verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens is a phrase that flags that something important is about to be said. And that is the sense of the Greek word here, although I think the Greek is even stronger. The word is literally only. Some translations have just one thing, which I think captures the urgency of the word. Brian and I had a short engagement, just 11 weeks. And so in that 11 weeks, really, there was just one thing that we were doing, organizing our wedding and preparing for our marriage. And everything else had to fit in around that. When athletes are preparing for the Olympic Games, there is really just one thing that shapes their whole life and everything fits around their training and preparation. I've heard from people who've done a PhD that there are times in that process where really that one thing is the only thing that they are concentrating on. Maybe you have your own just one thing experience in your own life. Often these focused times are transitional or they have a deadline and we live in a transitional time in the story of Jesus. We live in between Jesus' resurrection and the day when he will return. And so verse 27 calls us to focus our lives. God calls us to just one thing while we wait. And that one thing is to conduct our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So given this one thing is so important, let's unpack it a little. I want to say, uh, start, say to start with that Living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ doesn't mean living perfectly or sinlessly. My own life makes that very clear to me. I just can't do that. And maybe you're aware of that in your life as well. The sense here is of walking with a clear conscience before God, of going to him asking for forgiveness when we need to. That's why it's great that we confess our sins when we come to church each week. The sense here is of representing the gospel of Christ well, even if not perfectly. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ also doesn't mean earning our salvation. We're not working really hard so that God will love us. The very structure of this sentence shows us that the gospel news of God's love for us in Christ comes first. Living in a manner of worthy of it follows in response. But what does it mean to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? This word, conduct ourselves, really has a sense about it of being a citizen. It's about public behavior. So the Christian Standard Bible translates verse 27 in this way. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
and Tom Wright has his own similar trans translation. The one thing I would stress is this, your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. And Paul himself picks up this idea in Philippians chapter three, where he reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. I mentioned a few, years, uh, a few weeks ago that I was born in South Africa. Some of you may have been here that week, some of you might not have been. My family moved to Sydney when I was five and we became Australian citizens. At the time that we moved here, we weren't allowed to have dual citizenship, so we had to give up our South African citizenship. And living in a new culture, living as a citizen of a new country, means there are some changes in the way that you live. There were different words that we had to learn for some things, and you might have experienced this if you've moved to Melbourne. Uh, we had to learn that, say, mandarins in the fruit and veggie shops were mandarins and not nachis. Uh, we realized that in Sydney, there weren't many houses that had really high walls with armed response that came if your burglar alarm got set off. That was a completely new culture for us. I have to say though, and again, some of you might have experienced this, Vegemite was something that it seemed really important to get into. Uh, we never really transitioned into loving Vegemite, even though we are Australian citizens. Citizenship in many ways determines behavior. Christians are citizens of heaven, as we've just heard from Philippians 3, and we are called by God here to live in a manner worthy of that citizenship, to live in a manner worthy of the story of Christ. And this has a really public element to it. We're used to the, the idea, aren't we, that particular behavior is expected of people who have public roles. In the media over the last few months, there's been discussion of this in a number of ways. So how should the Australian of the Year behave? How should a professional tennis player behave? How should the captain of the Australian cricket team behave? The question Paul raises here is how should Christians behave publicly given that we are citizens of heaven? And the answer is in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul goes on now to show us how we can live in that way. Before we have a look at that, let's just uh, stop for a moment and think about where we've come. We've heard that the Christian life is one of believing in Jesus and possibly also one of suffering for him. And we've heard God's call to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I wonder how you feel sitting with that. I find that really inspiring. I also find it a bit overwhelming. It's a big call. And I find the prospect of suffering pretty daunting. In the face of opposition to Christian faith, I feel tempted to back down. In the face of opposition, I am tempted to feel isolated and alone. And in the face of opposition, I'm tempted to feel fearful. So it's incredibly encouraging that as Paul fleshes out what it looks like to live like this, he addresses these three temptations. Paul calls us to stand firm rather than to back down. He calls us to strive together as one, rather than to feel isolated. And he calls us not to be frightened when we're tempted to feel fearful. 
So let's have a look at verse 27 and 28. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. The main image here is of standing firm. If you look at it in an NIV Bible, you'll see that there's a little footnote there indicating that the Greek could be standing firm in the one capital S spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, or it could be standing firm in one small s spirit, standing firm together in one spirit. To be honest, both of those are true. And at the beginning of Philippians chapter two, verses one and two refers to sharing in the capital S spirit, the Holy Spirit, as well as being one in small s spirit. So whichever way we go on that in verse 27, I think the image here is clear. It's about not backing down. It's about holding the line together. It reminds me of being at the beach and standing in the waves. It has to be a wave beach, not a bay beach. But you stand on the edge of the water with the waves coming in. And then as the tide goes out again, or as the waves go out again, they pull against your legs. And if the tide is really strong, you have to kind of lean back and your feet dig into the sand to, uh, into the sand to stop you being pulled into the water. And if you're there with a little child, you have to hold them to stop them being dragged in to the water by the tide. We need each other as followers of Jesus to stand firm as we face the tug of the tide of culture. This calls for spiritual tenacity. When we are going against the flow of the culture, we have to struggle. It requires a conscious effort. To help us do this, Paul identifies two parts to standing firm together for Jesus. One is striving together for the faith of the gospel. And this is an image of really energetic teamwork, united teamwork. It reminds me of the way Ash Barty spoke about her win in the Australian Open in January. You'd think that winning uh, a Grand Slam singles tennis championship would be about one of the most individual sporting achievements that you could, you could um, get. But the way Ash Barty spoke about it was all about her team. It was all about how they had worked together for this victory. And the tennis commentators were really struck by the way Ash saw this as something they had done together as a team, something she couldn't have done by herself. Thinking about unity as Christians is always tricky. Clearly, it's a unity shaped by the faith of the gospel. Lynn Coick helpfully says this doesn't mean that all Christians have to think the same way on every specific point of doctrine. Rather, this is about holding a singular passion for the advancement of the gospel. For this to work, Christians have to trust each other and be trustworthy. We need to think charitably towards other believers and be faithful and grace-filled. Friends, my hope and prayer for us here at St. Jude's is that together we will hold a singular passion for the advancement of the gospel and that we will work together with other Christians who have that same passion. Striving together for the faith of the gospel is the first part 
of standing firm. The second part of standing firm together for Jesus is without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This feels like a real challenge to me, but we've already seen this idea in the earlier parts of Philippians chapter one. Remember, Paul is in chains, he's in prison as he writes this letter. And in verse 14, he says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. That's an unexpected result of Paul being in prison, that the other believers are proclaiming the gospel without fear. And in verse 20, Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Courage comes when we know who we belong to and when we know what our story is. This takes us back to the Christ hymn of chapter two, which reminds us that we follow a suffering servant. We follow a crucified Christ. If suffering is an expected part of our story, then we don't need to be frightened because we know the end of the story is vindication for every person who puts their faith in Jesus. The second half of verse 28 is a little bit tricky, but I think what it's saying is that the very action of Christians standing firm publicly together in the gospel sends a message that we are not afraid. This action is a sign to Christians that they do belong to Jesus, that they will one day be vindicated when he returns. And it's a sign to people who oppose Christian faith that a new world has begun in which the threats of the old one don't work anymore. So how do we live as citizens of heaven here in Melbourne in 2022? What does it mean for us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Paul urges us to stand firm rather than to back down. He urges us to strive together rather than to go it alone and to be courageous rather than to be fearful. So let's try to picture now practically how this might look as I finish up. I'm really aware that I'm new here at St. Jude's and I don't really know you very well and I don't know the ins and outs of your life. So I would love to hear from you any thoughts that you have in response to how this might look for you in your life each week. But I also wanted to share with you three thoughts just as I finish. First, I've been reminded as I've been looking at this passage that our Sunday services are public gatherings. They remind our city that Christians are here, that we gather united in the name of Jesus. So I wanna encourage each of us to be here as much as we can. I know that this is exactly what you expect a minister to say, right? Make sure you come to church every week. But I think we often don't reflect on the power of the public message that is sent when we gather together at church every single Sunday. 
I love that our foyer is glass. So as people walk past, they can see that there are lots of people here. There's stuff happening here on a Sunday. There's stuff happening here during the week. Now, obviously, COVID has made gathering in person really difficult and sometimes impossible over the last couple of years. And for some people, that's still a little bit tricky. But I want to encourage us to be at church in person as much as we can, to make that public statement that we are people who belong to Jesus. Church being a public gathering also shapes what we do when we gather and how we do it. I know that week by week, many of us here are regulars, but my hope and prayer is that every Sunday there will be some people who are new here, some people who are visiting, some people who might not be Christians. If, if you are in any of those groups tonight, I'm really glad that you're here. We really welcome you and we hope you have a great time with us. For those of us who are regulars, this really encourages us to welcome people well. Every now and then when I'm on holidays, I get to visit a different church. And I'm always really interested just to sit there and wait and to see who will talk to me. Uh, sometimes people do. Sometimes I've been to churches and no one speaks to me. For someone who's not a Christian, that sends a really negative message about who God is and about who Christians are. Our churches are public gatherings, so let's make sure that everything we do here when we are together is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Secondly, I know we spend most of our lives away from church. You might be at uni a lot of the time, you might be working a lot of the time, hanging out with your friends, maybe playing sport or part of other community groups. And being Christians in some of those contexts can be daunting. There are potential challenges and opposition to our faith. So let's make sure we support each other really well as we go into those contexts. Make sure you have a Christian friend who's praying for you at uni, who's praying for you at work, whatever other contexts you have during the week. If you're in a small group, it would be really great for you to share together in your small group. What are the hard things about being a Christian on campus? What are the hard things about being a Christian in your workplace? Let's pray for each other so that we don't do that by ourselves, but that we do it together. And on a much broader note, we know that there are Christians around the world who really are suffering for their faith. So again, let's get informed about that and pray for them so that we can stand together with them as they suffer because of their faith in Jesus. Thirdly, let's together as a community strive for the faith of the gospel. This is such a positive and proactive idea. We already do this in lots of ways at St. Jude's, and I'm only new, so I only know a few of them. We have Christianity Explored starting up soon at the beginning of March. That is a great way to strive together for the faith of the gospel. We have our estates ministry. We're having an Easter art show, which is an opportunity to invite people to come and celebrate Easter with us. Pray for all of those things and get involved if you can. I also recently read about a really interesting new Christian organization uh, launched about 10 days ago, and it's called Publica. It's an organization that is aiming to provide research 
and policy ideas around really significant social challenges. And I love this because it's trying to sow positively into the broader community. They're wanting to tackle things like the problem of loneliness. They're wanting to tackle things like how can we look after disadvantaged people better? How can we build caring local communities? How can we make sure children grow up in safe and nurturing families? Uh, this organisation is headed up by a guy called Patrick Parkinson. He's a professor of law, and I think it's got heaps of potential to be a really positive Christian statement uh, in our community. So look for opportunities like that, where you can be involved in what Christians are doing in a really positive way in public spaces. These ideas are really just scratching the surface. I'd love to chat with you about any ideas that you have. But right now, let me finish by praying for God's help in all of this. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he made himself nothing, that he took the nature of a servant, that he lived as a man. Thank you that he humbled himself, that he was obedient to death on the cross. And God, thank you that you have now exalted him to the highest place. May each of us honour him. May each of us acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.